Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Hello and welcome to the I Could Never Do That podcast. I'm Carrie Barrett, and these are the stories of people who have gone into the arena and fought hard to achieve the unthinkable in spite of the fact that, yes, sometimes they are scared and do have some insecurities. Are you ready to go in? It's my hope that after hearing some of these interviews with thought leaders and artists, athletes, musicians, and entrepreneurs, that maybe you too will be able to go from, I could never do that, to, you know what? Maybe I can. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough, skinny enough. You'll be in last place. Why even bother? This is the crap that we would never say to our closest friends, and yet for most of us, it's the hideous soundtrack of our lives. And that's why I never tire of talking about building a resilient mindset and creating consistent habits, because these practices are the only way that you're ever going to build confidence over time. My guest is licensed clinical social worker, Pat Spencer, who runs both a clinical therapy practice as well as a mental skills coaching business for athletes. And that business is called Getting Your Mind in Gear. And I love that because as you guessed it, Pat is an avid cyclist. We met at the Feisty Outspoken Business Conference last fall where I was immediately drawn to her passion for helping others and, quite honestly, her sense of humor and humility, which always shines when she speaks. And I didn't know much about her background, both professionally or personally, or why social work even became her career. So I ask a lot about that today, and I'm always so interested in how people find their careers, or in some cases, where the careers find them. And we do talk about a lot of her work, and especially her blog writing, like a recent post that she wrote called Three Steps to Building Confidence. Oh, Lord. You know, it's one thing to hear how to build confidence from a licensed social worker. It's another to hear it from some, you know, 21-year-old influencer. I'm going to listen to the expert here. And, you know, I think we know this, but we always have to be reminded that building confidence does not include scrolling on your phone to see what everybody else is doing. We also spend some time talking about some powerful research and her thoughts around exercise or cycling as therapy. There is some surprising, well, at least it was surprising to me. There's some surprising research showing that ultra endurance athletes are actually more prone to depression and mood disorders, even though exercise is often recommended as the antidote to depression. So what's up with that? Well, we, we unpack that a little bit today. Pat is also an ally, an advocate for the LGBTQIA plus community, which, as we know, is facing unprecedented difficulty these days, fitting into spaces that all should feel welcome. So sometimes you just meet people who you know you're going to connect with. And now we've hung out a couple of times because I recently saw her at the Gone Graveling Festival in Bentonville, where she cracked me up once again, showing me GoPro footage of her crashing on her bike. She just thought that was hilarious. But I just knew that Pat, when I met her the first time, was going to be one of those people that I knew I would connect with. And she's always up for a chat or, as we know, a laugh, sometimes even 
at her own expense. So please welcome Pat Spencer. Okay, good Friday morning. Hello, good morning. Good to see you today. Likewise, likewise. I've been, Pat, you've been kind of all over, at least in my orbit, (laughs) my very small orbit of feisty media and athletic uh, podcasts and articles. And Mm -hmm. you were, you just did an interview with Christy and Catherine from Girls Gone Gravel. Um, You were a recent guest on the Hit Play Not Pause podcast with Celine Yeager, which was, uh, you know, I produced that show. And so I see the results of that show and like that one resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, I, 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 I saw, I quite honestly with the Hit Play Not Pause podcast, I was uh, shocked, astounded. I, I'm, I'm not sure what word to use when I saw the, the feedback of people on Instagram, in the, on the Hit Play Not Pause Facebook page, just how much people connected with it. I just kind of thought, this is my little story. A few people will listen, you know, maybe it'll help somebody. But really, it it really hit home with a lot of folks. And that, that you know, like I said, it just, it, it kind of plucked at my heartstrings. Yes. Um, yeah. Resonated. Do you know what it was for me? I mean, besides the story, which we'll, which we will talk about today, it was you and you, your humor. Um, you're very funny. You're very dry. You're very funny, <laughs> and there is a sense of uh, the word that we all hate, but the, like a true sense of authenticity. And, and it wasn't humor as a defense mechanism. It was, I mean, you're, you're just, you're, you're a funny person, but you were telling an incredibly emotional story. And so it's, it was a good balance of, oh, we're going to go down this really kind of dark, scary rabbit hole, but like, Mm -hmm. she just cracked a joke. That's brilliant. (laughs) Like, that's brilliant. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I I really do appreciate that. And, you know, and, and I do try to use humor. It's, I don't know, humor's been with me since I was a kid. You know, I, I'm actually a child of the 80s. Like I graduated college, I graduated high school in 1990. So I truly am a child of the 80s. Yep. And yep. growing up, I used to love, oh my gosh, there was a show on like VH1, like comic stand-up or something. Oh yeah, last comic stand. Well, no, that was before last comic stand-up. It was like Rosie O'Donnell hosted yes. it for a long time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And they had the, like, like you were right, they had the brick wall behind them. And I, my God, I just, I would sit there and watch that. Like any, you can't record it. It's 1980s. Um, but, you know, I <laughs> yeah. would just watch it every time it was on. And humor's always just been something that helps me kind of make sense of what's going on inside of me, but also what's going on in the world, even though the world is quite honestly going through a lot of really hard things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I too am a child of the eighties. I graduated from high school in 91. So I'm just a year behind you. Um, but I agree with you. I would watch that show nonstop. And to the point where I pursued a, a career at stand-up comedy for several years, it was like late nineties, early two thousands where I was, I was actively doing stand-up comedy because it was the way that I could communicate. Now, I've also quite learned that it is my defense mechanism <laughs> in a lot mm-hmm. of things, but but yes, I understand. And so you were a child of the 80s did, and you grew up on the East Coast? Okay, so that's kind of a sort of complicated question. Uh, my father- Military kid. Yeah, I'm a military kid. My father was career Air Force. Um, 
he was an Air Force officer. He was a pilot. Um, so actually, I did primarily grow up in the East Coast, um, but we lived, you know, Arizona, Mississippi, South Carolina, Turkey, back to South Carolina, and then New Jersey. But I've been in Jersey since I'm since I was 11, and I'm now, you know, hitting 51. So I guess you could say I'm a child of the East Coast. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, and I, my, my husband is a, a military kid as well, and he is also uh, Air Force himself. And so I know that there's something to like just that whole m- movement every couple of years of not having uh, an anchor. You know, I, mm-hmm. I grew up in the Midwest where I went to school with the same kids from basically kindergarten to high school, and most of them haven't left. And mm-hmm. there's there's like I feel very anchored there. Um, did you feel like you grew up without that, without some kind of an anchor? And that's maybe why you fell into the work that you do now as a social worker? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I... I did not have a home anchor in that, you know, this one place was my home, but my anchor was my grandparents' house, my mom's parents in Connecticut. Um, And so my mom was a teacher. So every summer, you know, kind of my memory, and we also know child memories are a little bit, not quite a hundred percent true, but my memory is every summer we would spend like the entire summer at my grandparents' house Um, and, you know, going to the beach every single day. So my anchor is actually a place was never my residence. Uh, my anchor is New London, Connecticut. And we had our summer friends that we would hang out with at the beach because my grandparents um, in, in this particular area have to belong to a beach club to go to a beach. So they had belonged to a beach club. And my friends were the other kids at this beach club. Um, okay. So no, not necessarily a residential anchor with kids I went to school with. But yes, an anchor of a place that I kind of consider home and quite honestly most comfortable at. And what was what were you like as a kid? Were you always athletic? Were you extroverted, introverted? Oh, I would say I was always athletic. I love being active. Um, I was a swimmer throughout my life. Um, I swam on swim teams, uh, I think, from like age eight to 18. Uh, I was never winning. I was never the fastest one in the water, um, but I was always out there. I loved running. Um, but in high school, I kind of switched from athletics to marching band, uh, which is another type of athletics. There is a you know, physical component that goes with it. There's definitely teamwork in the marching band. Um, so that was more what I did in high school. Uh, I was on the swim team in high school, too, though. So I, a little bit of athletics, a little bit of not. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of a mix of an extrovert and introvert all at the same time. I love being around people, but please give me my alone time. Um, You know, as a kid, I'm like, again, as a military kid, you don't necessarily make lifelong friends. So for the first like 11 years, I was always a new kid in school. Um, You know, we, when we moved to Turkey, I don't, I was only six. So everybody's a new kid in school when you're six, because it's first grade. But um, (laughs) You know, it was like, okay, you're the new kid and you're there for two years. And then we moved to South Carolina and now I'm the new kid again. Now, granted, we lived near military bases, so I wasn't the new kid, but I was a new kid. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it's like you have to find a way to fit in and where is your group and who are your people. So I was comfortable with being alone, but I also enjoyed being around small groups of others. And the fact that you had a a music background and an athletic background, so there was some structure there, there were some skills acquisitions there. Were you a confident child as a result of that? I don't remember feeling confident as a kid. It was always like, how do I find that confidence? Um, you know, and especially in swimming, it was hard because, like I said, I was not the fastest one. I, I was actually one of the slowest ones. Uh, I've in, in adulthood, I found out I'm a great endurance swimmer, but unfortunately, in childhood, it's all sprints. It's like who who can do a fifty? Who can do a twenty five really fast? And the other kids are at the other wall, and I'm still like, oh my god, this is so pretty. Um, <laughs> that's basically an Ironman swimmer plus yeah yeah exactly I, I found my groove in my 30s um but I was not exactly confident um like even so much my younger sister she swam in a lower age group when I was like 12 they took me out and swam her in my place um so no it was not confidence it was just kind of energy burning and I enjoy the feel of it I enjoy what this is like yeah and what about empathetic, you know, and obviously I'm getting to traits that you certainly employ on a daily basis now with the people that you serve in your, in your, um, you know, social work, your clinical practice, plus your mindset practice that you have for athletes. Were you always empathetic with others? I think so. Um, you know, I, I always had like my small group of friends and we'd always all be there for each other. Um, I think my empathy, and I think actually most people's empathy grows through meeting others. So it was like through living in Charleston for a while, through living in Turkey for a while, through living in New Jersey, but also having this understanding of what it's like to be the outsider. Um, Because again, just as a kid, up until age 11, um, I was always new. Um, So, and even once I hit age 11, where we lived in New Jersey, we were not near the military base. So I was in a town where most people were from that town, born in that town, raised in that town, still live in that town. And so being an outsider with a Southern accent who academically was about a year behind because the schools in South Carolina were not quite as high achieving as the schools in New Jersey at the time, I just came in and was like, what? I was like, oh my God, what has happened? <laughs> who am I yeah. bless their hearts I don't understand <laughs> you know so um it really was until high school that I started fitting in and clicking um with others because I went to a private I went to a Catholic high school and so freshman year again everybody was new well, bless your heart. In that yeah, bless your school. heart. I finally, I just found my people. I was like, oh, here they are. Yeah. And Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's hilarious. <laughs> I went to a Catholic school too, so I can dish it because I have to take it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was really through others. And then, you know, I went to, I also went to Catholic college. I went to Seton Hall for college. Um, and then after that, I went into the Peace Corps and it was really in the Peace Corps that I learned about others, you know, and what it's like to try to fit in, what it's like to be the, I mean, I truly was the outsider. I lived in North Africa where they spoke Arabic 
I'm blonde, fair skinned and speak English. I don't look North African. I don't sound North African. I'm not Muslim. I mean, it was literally like dropping me into a foreign culture because it was. And it was there that I learned that people are more alike than different, that everybody has joys, everybody has happiness, everybody, you know, although we might speak a different language, eat different foods, believe in a different religious belief, at the core, we're actually all the same. Um, And that's where my empathy actually comes from, is like that we are all the same. Different stories, different hurts, different pains, but we all feel things. Was your undergrad in social work? What was what was your undergrad degree in? My undergraduate degree was in elementary and special education with a minor in psychology. Okay. Um, I was going to be a teacher. Originally in life as a kid, like a high school and, and younger, I wanted to be a military pilot. Uh, I'm of the age to, I was also always been kind of like girls can do anything, um, but I'm of the age where girls weren't fighter pilots. Um, when I was like eight or nine, my dad and his squadron had their first female pilots. And so that was when I got the idea that girls can be pilots. And then I'm like, no, I want to be a fighter pilot. And, you know, again, I grew up doing the Cold War era in the military bases and stuff. So I was like, I'm going to be a fighter pilot and I'm going to kill our enemies. I'm going to be the first female fighter pilot to kill an enemy in a dog fight. Like this was my goal. Very specific. Okay. That is, um, that is, that is oddly specific. <laughs> it is, it is. It, it, I have some odd quirks. Um, yeah. But then I got eyeglasses. I failed algebra. Um, and I was like, <laughs> there goes my dream. And so I'm like, all right, let's do education instead. Yeah. So I thought from forget- being like a fighter pilot to like a social worker, you know, yeah. it's, like forget dad's path. I'm going to take mom's path and be a teacher. Exactly. Yeah. Teacher. <laughs> right. And I was, I used to go to my mom's school and help out with the kids and, you know, I'd you know, go after school and help, you know, tutor or stuff like that. So that's where I, I got my degree in education uh, in the Peace Corps. I was a special ed volunteer. Um, and it was there that I really discovered the field of social work, like just through talking to other volunteers um, about is this teaching, is that really what I want to do or is there something else? And I found out I wanted to have kind of a bigger and broader impact um, and that teaching wasn't necessarily my thing. Um, so when I came back to the States, um, I actually reached out to one of my college professors. We met and you know she told me about the Rutgers School of Social Work and and that's how I, I guess you could say, fell into it. Yeah. Yeah. It just sounded like a door opened up, like opportunities opened up and you were open to receiving that you wanted to have a bigger impact, which mm-hmm. I don't know that people hear that, or if they hear it, they don't know what to do with it. And they, mm-hmm. you know, that is one area I think where some people can get stuck in life is they have a pool, they have a call. Mm -hmm. Uh, an urge and they either deny it or say, I just can't, or, um, or, eh, it's not for me. Or this, this school this teaching is a little safer for me. Um, but I think that that is one in one area where you said I could do that. I think that I can do this. Yeah. And, but I had support to do it, you know? And I I think that's one of the big things is I, I do, think a lot of people have hopes and dreams and desires and and want stuff. Um, You know, and later we can even go into like my private practice and how that started up. But the key for all of this is that I didn't do any of it alone. You know, um, when I decided to go to graduate school for social work, you know, like I said, I talked to a college professor. I talked to my parents. I, you know, um, 
you know, I had I had a safety net that could help me out. And, and quite honestly, I also had the assurance of knowing I have a teaching license. There was this, if things fail, I, I have a soft place to land. I have a soft mattress to land on. Um, so that makes my risks that I take, because I do take risks, but I don't take them without seeing kind of what are the possible consequences and what I have around me to help um, soften those soft, those consequences. And in your practice, when you are working with people, is that something that you also convey to them, which is yes, take risks, but try to line up as much support as possible or, as, or d- don't leap without certain, <laughs> certain securities in place? Or are you saying like, look, some people just don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, some people yeah. don't have any of that that you just described. Right. So in, in my private therapy practice, you know, because I, I have the two businesses, I have the mental yes. coaching and I have the private and the, and the therapy practice and the therapy practice. I'm not sharing as much of myself, um, you know, I'm, but and I'm also not telling people what to do. We will if someone's trying to decide, um, you know, let, let's say I'm working with a, a college student because I am right near Rutgers. So I have a fair amount of college kids. Let's say I'm working with a college student who's trying to decide if they want to change majors, um, which is a big decision for college students, right? So we'll go through. Um, first is kind of the, the why. Why do you want to change it? Um, what, what are you hoping to gain from it? Are you hoping to escape something or are you hoping to go to something? Um, you know, if someone's like a math major and they found out they hate math, what they're really trying to do is escape that math <laughs> um, <laughs> while going to something else. So we're going to look at the why. And then we're going to look at what are the kind of a risk reward or a cost benefit analysis. So what are the risks? Um, are those risks worth it? Are they, you know, how, how can you mitigate the risks as much as possible? Um, and then what's the reward for it? Um, and then there's like this whole decision matrix we can use, um, which is like the pros and cons of both doing what you want to do and not doing what you want to do. So like if you want to change your major from math to art, you know, the pros of changing it, you know, would be blah, blah, blah. The cons of changing it would be I've already put two years in. It's going to cost me more money. My parents might be angry, you know, but then what are the pros of changing it? Oh, I love art and it'll, you know, I, I feel light inside, you know, and what are the cons of art? And through all of this, a person can come up with a decision and figuring out, okay, so the cons are these things and here's how I can mitigate them. So the cons of changing to art is that maybe I won't make as much money. Maybe I, um, maybe my parents won't support me. Maybe this is a person whose parents are like, no, you have to have um, a degree that is quote unquote real. I, I do think art is a real degree. I'm not putting down the art degrees here, but you know, some parents are like, no, we need you to have a marketable skill. You got to get out in the world and looking at a painting is not it. You know, so how does that person then convey what they want to their parents? Um, is there a risk of losing financial support? You know, like, there's all the pros and cons we're going to go through and try to figure out if this person truly wants to be an art major, how do we work through the obstacles? And then the person makes the decision. So what a, what a valuable partner to have in that matrix of decision-making. And, and it sounds like what you do as both social worker therapist, and as we'll transition into like athletic mental skills coach, 
I was hearing just in your description of how you helped that particular student, I was hearing a lot of similarities in how you would probably work with athletes who feel overwhelmed, who feel stuck, who maybe have this big goal, this gigantic thing that they want to do, but have zero idea how they're going to get there. Mm -hmm. And you also, I would imagine, help them break it down into these little steps. So are those some of the similarities between what you do as a clinical therapist and what you're doing as an athletic mental skills coach? So, you know, what I see a lot with triathletes is that they start oftentimes with the sprint distance or the short distance. And a lot of them are like, no, no, I'm only doing sprint. I'm not doing anything longer. And all of a sudden they're building longer and longer. And now people are like, all right, I'm going to do an Ironman. And what a lot of people don't realize is how much an Ironman actually takes and, and how much it takes from you. Uh, not, not just time and time away from family, but just even the physical toll. And I also see a lot of triathletes tend to be pretty type A, pretty much I've determined I'm going to do this. And unfortunately, I've spent an awful lot of money to register for an Ironman race. So come hell or high water, I'm doing it. Um, and so I'm going to work with them on figuring out why. Why are you doing it? Um, you know, not in a judgmental way, like, oh, my God, why? You know, but more like, okay, you know, why? Like, so you, you signed up for, um, I don't know, Ironman Lake Placid. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite races or Challenge Roth or something like that. Okay, awesome. You've signed up for it. What was your why of signing up for it then? Let's explore that. Let's explore what was going on. Um, is it a bucket list item? Is it you're looking for the next challenge? Is it that your whole team is doing it and you want to be there with them? Um, you know, just what is the why? And our whys do tend to change over time. Um, they might stay the same, but they also might change. Um, so I'm going to look at someone signed up for Lake Placid in September of last year, and now we're in April of this year, and they're starting to feel burnt out. You know, well, what's the why? Let's go back to that. Is it the same? Have things changed? Um, and then we're going to look at, okay, so what does the training actually take? You know, what are the pros of the training? What's it actually giving you? What are the cons of the training? What's it taking away from you? What are the pros? And, you know, just again, going through the whole thing and acknowledging that this actually is a pretty big decision. Because if you've registered for Ironman Lake Placid, I actually do not know what the entry cost is anymore, but I'm imagining somewhere in the six to $700 range. Yeah, I was going to say at least probably eight at this point. Yeah, probably. Um, and that's $800, right? Like, like just, and for people who might listen to this and, and don't, grasp that. Like that's $800 just to register for the race a year in advance before it sells out. I don't know if it sells out like it used to, right? but that is the, from a triathlon, from a long distance triathlon perspective, like that is where the stress begins when you plunk down your credit card and for something that's a year away that you have no idea how you're going to get to at this point. Yeah. You know, so that's some of the stuff we're going to explore. And maybe that becomes part of their why. I mean, you know, I, I've certainly been there when I did Mont Tremblant in 2016. I didn't feel very good. But part of me, you know, part of my decision to continue doing it was I've already spent, 
I think entry back then was like $600, let's say. I'm like, I've already spent $600 on this. Like, that's a lot of money, you know? So what's literally, what's the value of it? Um, you know, so we'll talk through that. We'll explore that. We'll explore some of the anxieties maybe that are behind it of, you know, what happens if I say no, because it's non-fundable, um, you know, or what happens if it's like, I don't want to disappoint others, or I've already put so much time into this. Um, you know, so again, just walking through what is the actual reasons for the decision. So once we figure out the why, we can figure out, is it worth it? You know, and looking at what are you actually committed to? Um, you know, because if you're doing, because what we'll also do is kind of back up is why do you do triathlon at all? I don't care if it's the local sprint race that has 100 people registered or it's an Ironman race with 3,000 people. What do you get out of it? Why are you doing this? Um, and is there a way to still get whatever that is, but maybe in a different way that's a little bit healthier? Yeah, there is something about entering into athletics as an adult that is so different than when you just did something for fun as a child. <laughs> you know, you you talking a little bit about your swimming and even being on swim team and knowing that you weren't the fastest, but but like it was it was a way to burn energy and it was like it gave you structure and it gave you community. And then when we enter sports as an adult, whether you join a running group or cycling team or triathlon team there, for some reason, there is another level of anxiety that comes with that. And, can you, in your work, when you're working with athletes, because it like some of the things that you describe on your website, which is getting your mind in which I love getting your mind in gear. Cause you are an avid cyclist. Um, you lack, you, you list a lot of different scenarios in which you help people. So people who are lacking motivation, people who aren't confident in your train in their training or, or even anxiety that like can hijack any joy that you find mm -hmm. in, in your sport. Like these are all things that, that I have experienced in the past and where do you think that comes from as an adult? Is it just fear of starting something new? Uh, is it the comparison game that we all put ourselves in with other people? Mm -hmm. Where does it come from as an adult? To create it? Wow. Um, and I do think it's going to change for each person, you know, and it, a lot of it does go back to the why of why are you doing this? Um, you know, so for some, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe they were a great athlete as a teenager, you know, up to a teenage years or maybe up to early 20s. And now they're kind of re-entering it in 40s and 50s and not as great, you know. And so it kind of a little burst to the self-esteem of, hey, I was a really strong swimmer, but now I'm like mid-pack. I don't understand what happened there. So it kind of challenges our own self-identity um, is one possibility. You know, another possibility could be I have put time and training into this and I don't want to disappoint myself. I don't want to disappoint my family that's here. I don't want to disappoint my friends that have helped me train that kind of can get added into it. Um, but yeah. for a lot of us, um, and I don't necessarily know if it actually is different for men than women, but I hear women talk about it a lot more. It's our inner dialogue. And we do tend to have a, sometimes at, at times a negative inner dialogue. And so sometimes our athletics is a way to prove that inner dialogue wrong. Um, but sometimes we're out there and all of a sudden that inner dialogue's like, see, I told you you weren't very fast. I told you you couldn't do this. 
you know, I told you you're too old, too tall, too short, too big, too little, you know, too gay, too straight, too whatever Mm -hmm. to do this. Um, And where we're using the exercise as an escape, it actually becomes part of the stressor. Um, So again, we're going to look at that. I'm going to be exploring what is the message? What 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 are you telling yourself? What's your mind? Not necessarily what are you telling yourself, but what is this part of you telling the other parts of you? Um, yeah. And what is that part of us? Like, I think I feel like if we could just somehow squash that part of us, you know, that that and and this is where you come in because you provide the mm-hmm. tools and techniques and anecdotes to help us quiet that monkey brain. I mean, I, I know where comes from, correct me, actually, correct me if I'm wrong here, or, or please explain it in a better, more clinical way. But that voice that's telling us you're, you're to this, you're not good enough. What are you doing here? That's like, that's our fight or flight in some cases, like that is, that is, it's actually a good thing. You know, when we wake up on race day, nervous (laughs) and, and sweaty, uh, (laughs) with our heart racing, because it is our body's primer to help us through fearful moments where it used to be the tiger and it used to be, you know, the dinosaurs. And now it's, it's a, it's a local sprint triathlon. Right. <laughs> and, and so that thing that's there, that voice that's there, that's telling us all of these things like, get out, what are you doing What the run, run, get mm-hmm. it, get away. Um, we need that. We, we, we need that voice, but your role as a mental uh, health skills coach is to help us change the dialogue of that voice in some ways. Right. And I I try to look at it as how can we calm that voice? I don't necessarily think we can necessarily get rid of it. Um, You know, because there are reasons for that voice and it is a protective part of ourself is kind of the way I look at it. It's not a very friendly, protective part of ourselves. <laughs> uh, I mean, quite honestly, mine could be downright mean. Um, but it's like, how do we? And again, different people are going to have different ways of actually coping with it. But the way that I have found the best, but also the hardest, is to listen to it, to give it a little bit of space, but to then say, okay, I hear you, and then kind of feel what are the feelings behind it. So, um, you're not fast enough for this race. You know, you're, you're like, I've done, you know, unbound twice and the the hundred miler. And each time I line up, I'm like, okay, look at these people here with their fancy bikes, you know, and and I do have a nice bike. I I will say that, Um, but you know, you're, (laughs) we do tend to tend to compare ourselves with each other's, but then I sit there and just say, okay, you know what? You're right. I am not fast enough to win this race. So let's just acknowledge that because I'm not going to, that's not what I'm here for but I am fast enough to finish it, you know, and I appreciate and, I, and I, I'm literally in my mind. I'm not always out loud, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, I appreciate the concern. Um, you know, but I, I've got this and, um, you know, if you can just go to the side for a little bit and we're going to, you know, I'll, I'll see you at the checkpoint at, in, in 50 miles <laughs> and see how we're doing then. Um, so I give it some space. Now, the meaner it gets, quite honestly, the less space I'm going to give it. Um, you know, it's like, you're, you suck, you're horrible, you know, those types of negative things. I'm like, okay, I don't believe you. Uh, what you're saying isn't right. Um, but again, just, you know, I'm, I, I got plenty of other reasons to think I'm not horrible. I mean, look, I'm out here, I'm doing it. I'm, 
you know, whatever. Um, so I do look at it as kind of a, it, it's trying to protect us in a very punishing way. Yes. And, and I think so much of that is probably in from coming from the environment in which we were raised. And as you said, the scenarios of what those voices are saying are for different reasons. I love what you said about the person who doesn't want to like let their family down and Mm -hmm. wants to be the hero. Cause I, I do often see that in races where you've got the little kids on the side of the road, holding the signs for their dad or their mom, you know, you're my hero. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that's a lot of responsibility to put on yourself, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, be finishing an Ironman. Is that, is that what you want your kid? I don't know. It's like that, the hero thing that you Mm -hmm. put on, I know that's a lot of expectation. And, you know, mine is because I, I grew up an overweight, chubby, kid with big boobs like I was like the awkward I look like an oompa loompa from Willy Wonka when I was growing up and like and but I was incredibly athletic like I was a tomboy and I, I was I was athletic and coordinated but I just never liked my body at all and and so now like when I transitioned to running and triathlon it was like I know I'm an athlete but I was always the slowest runner uh I like I was terrible at swimming yeah you know, like all of those fears and 25 years on I I am not that person anymore but that voice just doesn't go away so So I love how you framed it up by saying, you know, one of the first things that you have to deal with when you're working with a new client is like identify the root cause of that voice, like, Mm -hmm. and then start to problem solve from there. Right. Because I don't think confidence, I don't think we're just born with confidence. It's a skill, isn't it? Yeah. No, I I believe confidence is learned. Actually, I, I think confidence is earned and gained. Um, in that in order for us to feel confident, we have to do things that challenge our confidence. So we mm. have to do hard things. Um, yes, you, you know, wrote a blog if- about that. You wrote, <laughs> uh, and, and I will, I'll put links to all of your, like your website and, and your blogs in, awesome. in show notes, but you did write a blog about the three steps to building confidence. And the first one, it shocked me, I have to say, cause the first one was like, do the hard things. And I'm like, Oh, no. <laughs> Can't I just do some woo-woo stuff first and then maybe think about doing the hard thing? Nope. No, nope. you don't get confidence. You know, I'll joke and say you don't get confidence from watching YouTube videos, although I love, I mean, I, I love YouTube, um, <laughs> you know, but we get confidence through doing it. We get confidence through action. Confidence is a, is a result of verbs. Confidence is a result of doing. Um, And if you haven't done this exact thing, like the first time I lined up for a triathlon was 2007. I was um, quite a bit heavier than I am now. You know, I I didn't know the first, I didn't know what do you, all the standard intro to triathlon questions. What do you you change your bathing suit? Like what, what do you mean? I don't wear a bathing suit. What do you mean? I I wear shorts with pads in it that I swim in and then get on a bike. I don't, I don't have those. Um, Yeah. What what is this? You know, what, what is transition? Hello. My my favorite transition story though, is my friend, um, my my friend, Jennifer, her first triathlon during uh, T1 during transition one, she got lipstick out. She combed her hair. She had long hair. 
my wife is like, Jen, you have to go. It's a race. <laughs> I did. when my, when I first got my husband into triathlon, he would take like the, actually one of his one of his Ironman T two, I believe it was Ironman Texas. It was like uh, over thirty minutes, and I was like, oh, what wow. happened in there? And it's like he was fighting those demons that day, but of not mm-hmm. wanting to to do it. But like, but yeah, you're right. Like what like. What, you don't, this counts, like yeah. <laughs> transition no. counts on your time. It does, but it's also a time to learn. So yeah. like, you know, my, my first triathlon, I didn't know the first thing and I was scared to death. I'm standing there at the start line. I'm watching people in wetsuits and I'm in a bathing suit. You know, um, we, we do that. It's only, it was a sprint. So it was like a 500 yard or 500 meter swim. We come back into T1 and, you know, I'm like, what do I do now? Um, so I, I had no confidence. I, I was confident that I could do the race because I had done other races throughout my life. And I kind of had this mindset of it. I was like, it won't take me more than two and a half hours to do a sprint race. Um, and it took me about that long. Um, you know, but I'm like, I can do anything in this world for two and a half hours. I can suffer. Um you know, and it's through doing the stuff that we build the confidence, you know? And so I, although I was not confident in that first triathlon, I was confident that I could at the very least finish um, because I had swam previously or because I'm actually a pretty decent biker. I'm a horrible runner, but I can bike, you know, pretty well. Um, You know, so I had these small things of confidence that I could build on. So confidence comes from doing, you, you have to do hard things. You know, I, there, there's two things I tell anybody, any, co- any employees I've ever supervised is I want you to do something every day that scares you and make a new mistake every day. And oftentimes they can be the same thing. <laughs> um, and doing something that scares you can be going up to your boss and saying, Hey, I worked here for so long. I would like a raise, um, you know, or the hard thing, the scary thing can be, I don't know. <laughs> I, it, I, you can tell I've been married since before Tinder, but you know, going up to a cutie at the bar and being like, "Hey, how you doing?" Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it doesn't have to be, you know, like jumping out of an airplane. Type of right, thing. and I think of in terms of the work that I do here with, I could never do that. Just even reaching out to you or anyone to ask for an interview is is a nerve wracking experience because there's always the 50-50 chance that they're going to say no. No, no, thanks. I don't, you know, who are you? You know, you're going to get all of the, all of that things, but I'll tell you what, I would say 99% of the people I've ever reached out to have always said, absolutely. Absolutely. So it is, it's like doing that over and over again and facing that possible rejection within that formula for building confidence. I still, still mad at you that doing the things is the first thing that you put on there, but like, uh, (laughs) But you also talk I about the, <laughs> I know, yeah. You also talk about motivational self-talk. Now I can do that all day. I could look in a mirror and and give myself motivation motivational speeches all day. But it's not just reading a David Goggins book that's going to give me confidence, right? It's not just harden the fuck up. Um, but what do you mean by motivational self-talk? So motivational self-talk, I look at as whatever it is that you think a friend or a coach or somebody who cares about you would say, not a mean coach or some mean coaches out there, but what would somebody, you know, Hey, listen, and I'm also usually honest, this is hard and you are strong enough to do it. Yeah. Yes. It's raining. Yes. You're cold. 
and you have a jacket on, so we're good to go. You know, so it's kind of whatever you need to push yourself forward. And I often will say, what would you say to a friend? Um, you know, if you're out there on a race course, are you going to tell somebody, oh my God, you look horrible? You know, no, you're going to be like, hey, you know, we're at mile 24 out of 26. We have two more to go. You can do two miles. We've, we've got this. Um, you know, so it's kind of the, the, the inner cheerleader, the inner coach, the inner friend. Um, and what I also suggest with motivational talk for athletes, especially, is if we're going to be doing an event, um, we tend to have a, a normal script in our head that our, our body, our mind automatically goes to. For me, it's, I'm tired. This is hard. I hurt. Those are my, you know, and, and then it, it jumps to, can I actually do this? It jumps to self-doubt. Um, so for me, I know my script has to be something like, you're strong enough, you've trained, you know, and usually this happens for bike rides, this, that negative part happens the last five or 10 miles. So on my training rides, I plan, what's this, what am I going to say to myself? Um, I can also write out index cards with, you know, what I need to hear. Um, thankfully, my wife is pretty, um, she, she knows me really well. And so like when I do Unbound and we have that checkpoint, I, this past year I, I rolled in, I'm like, that's it, I'm done. <laughs> and she knows exactly the right thing because it was, it was pouring, it was thundering, it was lightning, it was, you know, she, she goes, we drove to Kansas, you're biking another 40 miles. <laughs> she goes, and you can do this. <laughs> And that was the most, she goes, have some potato chips or have some bugles or have some Doritos, whatever. She goes, have a drink, but you can do this. You've got it. Go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not to dismiss calories, but sometimes it is just lack of calories that your body needs in that moment. Like it's hungry. And so it's pissed. Yeah. No. And that's one of the first things, you know, when I'm really working with somebody is like, let's first look at, you know, the little script. Let's also look at our body, you know, when we're doing especially athletics, but also just day to day stuff. You know, I, I do clinical supervision with social workers and they're like, by the end of the day, I'm like, you know, I'm barely there. I'm like, OK, well, what have you eaten throughout the day? What are what are you drinking? You know, for athletes, I'll say, you know, just reach down you know, on your bike, reach down, grab a bottle, have a drink, have a snack, have something out there because your brain and your body need those calories. Um and quite honestly, if your body doesn't have the calories, your brain's actually kind of telling you the truth that you can't do this if you don't have the calories. So eat and drink, stay hydrated. That's always the first thing. Yeah. And I've, and this, that sort of leads into your third point about building confidence. You know, the, obviously the first being the doing the second being mm -hmm. the, the motivational self-talk and the third being preparedness. And I, I feel like that's where so many athletes drop the ball. We do all of the training. Like there is, we're going to check that box green. If it kills us, we're going to, we're going to hit our mark on the training. And then we, we get closer to the race or we show up on race day and we have zero plan of how we're going to hit that, the, our goals. We just like, there's nothing. No, we, we need to prepare. We need to plan. Um, you know, I haven't written it yet, but I am going to have a blog coming out kind of in the relatively near future. And, and I'm kind of calling it 3PR2. So um, plan, prepare, perform would be the P's. And then recover and review would be the R's. So the prepare and the plan is, what is the plan? <laughs> you know, what is, 
everything, especially in athletics, it's when are you eating? When are you drinking? How many, I might not need to know exactly how many carbs or how many grams, but I, I know what feels good to me. Um, and then I also plan for what I have the, the what if, or the, if then, you know, what if my water bottle falls off? Um, well, quite honestly, I'm not out there to win the race. So if my water bottle falls off, I'm pulling over to the side, I'm stopping and I'm walking back and I'm getting my water bottle. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. For others, that might not be the plan. For others, it might be if my water bottle come, falls off, I actually have another bottle that has extra calories or at the aid station, I have that, you know, but what is your plan? What's your plan if everything goes well? What's your plan of, you know, if you're doing a, a bike event, since that's now my main event that I do or bikes, you know, what does it look like? How are you going to attack the hills? Are you going to attack the hills? Or are you going to ride gently up them to save energy and then, you know, tear at it after that? What's your plan for nutrition? What's your plan for if things do start to mentally unravel? Um, You know, the day before the race or the night before the race, I try to have things laid out as much as possible. Um, So although I don't necessarily make my drinks the night before, because I kind of, in my mind, like them fresher, but I have everything. I have the bottle sitting there. I have the, 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 the powder I use, you know, I have my snacks already on the bike. um, And I quite honestly don't care what other people think. Um, you know, I'm like, cause someone, I, I did a bike, not a race, but a, a ride around here like two years ago and it was 60 miles and I, I wore my hydration pack and I, I wore it because I'm specifically focusing on trying to hydrate more and have more calories. And we're at one of the aid stations, which was no more than a table with a gallon of water on it. And the guy's like, why aren't you wearing a hydration pack? It's only 60 miles. Uh I was, I just looked at him and in my mind, I'm like, do I verbally slap him down? Yeah. Or do I just, I just kind of looked at him. And I said, so I chose not to verbally slap him down, trying to be the better person. I was like, so I have it because I want it. And that was it. And then he starts talking to his friends like, it's only 60 miles. You don't need that. Oh my gosh. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't know my calorie needs. You don't know what I'm actually training for. You don't know what I actually have in here, um, you know, so I'm kind of like, I don't, other people be damned, you know, like when I'm out here riding, let me ride my race. If I want to wear a hydration pack, I will. That stuff is, that's the stuff that can be a, a showstopper for a lot of people. You know, yeah. it just takes one, you know, asshole, female or male, it doesn't matter to like, yeah. to make you feel so diminished that you're like, well, I'm never showing up again. Right. You know, and, and thankfully I'm old enough. I have enough confidence in me that, and, you know, at the time I was working with nutritionist, I did have a plan. Like I, I had all that, but if I'd been a newer and I'm not talking like age wise old, but I'm old in endurance events. Um, you know, I'm like, if I'd been a newer one and someone said, well, I only bring two bottles and that's all I'm going to drink for 60 miles. Well, then guess what? I'm only bringing two bottles. And you know, maybe that's fine. Maybe it's not. What a great example, Pat. And I appreciate your transparency in all of this because you've shared a lot, both in your writing and on the podcast interviews that, that I've heard where, you know, you've come about all of this, the hard way, the honest way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And a lot of these skills that you're helping other athletes to develop and hone are skills that you yourself on a daily basis have to get up and employ 
for your own endeavors. And I don't want people to not realize that, that it's not just you pontificating about, oh, this is what you should be doing. This is, you're like, this is what I do. <laughs> right. And, and it's still not easy and it's still not perfect. And, you know, you've talked about, uh, on hit play, not pause very specifically. And well, yeah. And very emotionally about your 2016 Ironman at, uh, Montremblant where that particular day changed everything for you. Um, and that training block, because you went into that race as most triathletes do long distance triathletes do completely overtrained mm-hmm. and underfueled. Mm-hmm. And it, it was the showstopper for you that day. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about that day? You don't have to go into that too much detail. Cause I will direct people to listen to it more on the other shows, but like how that influenced what you do now and the type of work you do now. Yeah. So, um, the 2016 Ironman Mont and the whole, but not like the whole year leading up to it was quite a challenge. Um, and part of how it's influenced me now is kind of around that time, maybe even the year before I'd started looking into like mental performance coaches, um, because my training was spot on, um, you know, I would turn the boxes green um, with the exception of, you know, once I started really getting sick. And again, you can certainly listen to the hit play, not pause for all the the, the dirty details. Um, but I started not making the workouts, but I kept thinking it's me, you know, it's my I'm physically not doing something right. And I would talk to my coach and she's like, no, just do what I wrote and you're you're good to go. And so then my thoughts started turning a little bit, um, you know, darker and which is actually part of the overtraining is um, an increase of depressed mood. And so I started looking for like mental coach or, you know, trying to hone my skills somehow. And I couldn't find one. Now, I'm not sure if I just didn't Google the right things or, or what, but I couldn't find one. Um, So I went through the 2016 stuff. And ended up not finishing Montremblant. And I have done two triathlons afterwards, but only one was a a sprint. And that was simply to qualify for you at for nationals. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know why that was a goal, but it was Um, actually, I do know why I wanted to prove something to myself. I wanted to prove I could still be a triathlete. Um, I didn't want my last triathlon to be a DNF. Uh, And then I did USAT nationals. Um, And then I called it a career from there, but it changed everything. Because in the year afterwards, I didn't do any formalized training. Um, I, I did find a friend. She ended up being a friend, wasn't a friend at the time to do strength training with who helped get me back on path. But I kind of thought my days of being an athlete are over. So I actually took up a whole different hobby because I'm not one to have idle hands. Uh, I, I ended up like taking up uh, photography. So that's where I put my energy. Um and then kind of slowly coming back. And, you know, what I found was that, yes, physical training is vital. I mean, you cannot go out and do an Ironman without putting the miles in. You just can't. But the difference, I think, of a good day and a bad day can be your mindset. Um, and the difference of lining up or not lining up can be your mindset. And also the difference of in your comfort of not lining up because sometimes not lining up is the right decision. Um, 
you know, and so I want to be that person. I want to help support and, you know, as much as possible guide um, others to have as much mental comfort as possible when doing, especially endurance events. And I especially want to focus on women and the LGBTQ community because that's who I am. Um, you know, and I would go to like club rides and I, I belong to a really great club. I happen to love the, the team I'm on. Um, but they're all very, very, very good, highly accomplished triathletes. And although for a while we had a group of women that seems to, they, they, we've all, they've all moved away. Hmm. But when you go to a club ride, it's all men and they're all powering. They're just like hammering. So I don't show up anymore, you know? Um, and, you know, so I want I wanted to create a space where it is for us. So. I love that. And why specifically, I mean, you say women and the LGBTQ plus community, like, yes, we share a lot in common, but our trans brothers and sisters and our queer brothers and sisters, they face things that I can't even fathom at this point. Um, it's a whole different level of fears of anxieties of not belonging. I know what it feels like to not belong as a female in certain areas, but this, this is a different, this it's, it's like, it's incomprehensible to me, the fear that they have to carry with them. And Mm -hmm. you actually wrote a sentence and you you probably wrote this in passing on your website, but it it rocked me to my core, but it it just said, I believe gender diversity is normal and not a mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that broke my heart when I read that, that, that there are people who believe that it's a mental illness. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about why? this community is so important to you other than the fact that yes, you are a gay person and you are married to a female, but like there, there's more there. Yeah. So, I mean, just being gay in and of itself, you know, and especially a gay person who grew up when gay wasn't okay. Um, you know, and, and, and it's still not a hundred, uh, let me rephrase that. <laughs> gay is okay. Uh, you know, I want to make, I don't want anybody to get upset. It's not, no, it's okay. It's wonderful. It's great. Please. Um, Everybody be but, gay, basically. Yeah, <laughs> please. Um, but we, as a larger culture and society, every single LGBTQ person has to make a decision anytime they either do come out or don't come out. There's always a decision. And, you know, e- even if you are among the most welcoming people, but they don't tell you that you're, they're welcoming, how do you know that? You know, so just an example, um, like I met Christy and Catherine of the Girls Gone Gravel podcast. I met them back in 2021 because I was on that and they interviewed people from Bound. And they happen to be, I, mean, I didn't know it at the time, but they are the most you know, LGBTQ friendly people ever, you know, Christy has, and her team at Unbound have single-handedly changed the face of gravel to allow, um, you know, the the trans community, not to allow, but to invite the trans community in. Um, But I didn't know that at the time. So when I was meeting with them, I was kind of in the back of my mind going, do I tell them? Do I not tell them? Do I introduce my wife as my wife? Or is she just my good friend? 
Um, so there's always that question mark of who and how do you come out to. Um, so I want my business or my businesses, I want everybody to know they are welcome. You know, you, you show up as you are and you are more than welcome here. Um, you know, and the reason I put that, you know, trans is not a mental illness because it's not, um, you know, it is gender diversity. It's how you identify. It's, it's not an illness. It's not a disorder. Um, you know, it living in our society and in our community can cause mental distress, but being trans in and of itself is not a mental illness. So I want to differentiate that. Um, and I just, I basically just want an invitation and I want people to know that who you are, you show up to me, you are 100% accepted. You know, you are you, I value you, I respect you. I might have questions about kind of your experience and what it's like being you. Um, but I want you to feel welcome here in my space. And it's, and it's definitely, a, uh, I, I really do applaud, like you said, Christy and the team at Lifetime and Unbound who are, you know, who have opened up categories for non-binary athletes. I, other sports are coming along. Um, and I, I think that that, I hope and pray that like, that's the next wave of participants of people who do start to feel more welcome because, um, I it's, I can't imagine, um, showing up as a non-binary person and the flack that, and I guess I'm just seeing all the vitriol that you see online and that we're all reading about right now. And, um, to, to not feel like there's a space for you to compete Mm -hmm. as a human being who just loves to compete or ride your bike or run or do triathlons like it. So thank you. I think is what I, is my, my bottom line and all that is like, thank you for creating that safe space and, and letting, you know, that community as well as, you know, the BIPOC community, any, any underserved community, you, they are welcome with you. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and yes, that's, yes. Absolutely. I mean, and that I, you could, that shows up in spades in just, just your, just the way you talk and the way you work with people. I want to round it up because you actually do have a clinical practice. Um, <laughs> and, and we can, I could talk all day as most people know. Um, but I want to sort of round it up with a piece that you wrote most recently. Okay. Resonated with a lot of us at Feisty and, um, and it was the catapult for me to go, all right, I got to reach out to Pat. I got to talk to her about, I could never do that because you basically like the title of the blog is essentially my pet peeve. And I'm like, oh, this is always good. You know, <laughs> like what, what, what drives a therapist crazy? So, uh, so I, I opened it up and it, I laughed out loud because it's like the whole cycling is my therapy. Running is my therapy. Running is, you know, um, you're like, no, no. Like I, you're like, I understand that there are, that there are benefits to exercise and yes, we should all swim, like get out there, do your thing, mm -hmm. move your body. Yes. It is. It, it can be therapeutic, um, and beneficial. However, <laughs> here's the part that I 
wasn't completely aware of. You started to cite studies, analyses, and meta-analyses in the research right now of how detrimental this training and this is going to be, like how <laughs> detrimental this can be. And um, can you talk a little bit about what you found in some of the research? Yeah, what I found, uh, it, it shocked me. I, I think I wrote in the blog that I, I literally had to read the same paragraph several times because I was like, this cannot be true. So it, it, it shook me and it shocked me to see the what these meta-analyses showed. And, and for those that don't know, a meta-analysis is simply a study of studies. They take a whole bunch of studies and they look at them and they say what's common, what's not common, uh, what 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 are some of the outliers, you know. Um, and what they found is that uh, among ultra-endurance athletes, which they consider Ironman athletes ultra-endurance, is an increase of anxiety and depression. Um, despite despite the known benefits of exercise, yeah. Right, and I was say it's kind of counterintuitive because everybody talks about how um, to treat moderate, mild and moderate depression, exercise is very beneficial. And at times, exercise can be um, as effective, if not more effective, than formal treatment for mild and moderate depression. But, and it's a big but, um, that is with people that don't exercise like Ironman athletes. And typically, that's for people that weren't exercising before. So for the treatment to be to be effective for mild and moderate depression, it almost has to go from a non-exerciser to an exerciser uh, of being just a few hours a week, you know? Um, But what they're finding is with ultra endurance athletes is an increase of mental health concerns, an increase of anxiety, increase of depression. I believe it was the other article that talked about the eating disorders that occur, especially in female cyclists as one particular study looked at. Um, So, you know, I, I'm always concerned when people say that, oh, I'm using cycling for therapy. Now I know sometimes they're saying it as a joke. Um, and I get that, but other times it can take away the seriousness of mental health concerns. And if I remember correctly, I think I I subtitled my blog, something like our mental health is too serious for a meme or something Yes. Our mental health. Yeah. It says our mental health is too important to reduce to a meme. Yes. Um, and you know, I am a career social worker. I've been in the field for 25 years, um, literally half my life. And I've seen how mental health impacts people and I want everybody to take it seriously, but I also don't want my fellow endurance athletes to, to forego treatment. Um, because like, well, I cycle, I ride, you know, people say, uh, I use cycling for my ADHD. And do you know what? Exercise actually does help ADHD. It really does. So please go out there and do it. But let's still keep our eyes open for um, other signs, other symptoms. Is it impacting us? You know, the ADHD, for example, a- across other domains. Um, and let's not skip something that could help us, which is treatment. Um and what I didn't write in that blog, but I think I put in my previous newsletter, was like uh, Chelsea Sodaro, um, the Ironman world champion. She had a New York Times article recently about her, about a month and a half, month, month and a half ago, where she talked openly about her mental health, especially after Kona. 
um, and how she started taking medication, I believe, for OCD. Um, you know, so I, I I simply want people to have mental health on their radar um, and to also recognize that at times our endurance training can actually lead to mental health concerns. It can lead to, like, if we are overtraining, uh, and I'm, I'm just talking overtraining in general, not necessarily the official thing of overtraining syndrome, but overtraining can lead to um, depressed mood. You know, it can lead to anxiety. Like our training can actually be the cause of this. I, yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> yes, I've, I've witnessed. Yes, I've experienced it. Yes, I've seen it in other athletes. And it can lead to lack of sleep. It can, you know, lead to, as you, as you went through with 2016, it led to really, really deep depression and Mm -hmm. the phys, even the physical aspects of it, you're training your body to become some sort of machine. And yet every part of your body is breaking down. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, I love, I love that because it just, it brought it home. So never forget that there are people like you out there that if you are trying to accomplish something big in life, you know, you're, you're tackling your, I could never, but Mm -hmm. the, the work that you're doing around that, whether it's athletic training or school training or whatever, like the, what, if it's, if it's leading to a lot of these negative symptoms that you've talked about, then it's time to bring someone in who can help mm-hmm. you sort out right. some of that stuff. And I, you know, you are the perfect person to, to help somebody walk through that. And the last thing that I will leave people with was something that you wrote on your, one of your Instagram stories that I actually, I think it was an Instagram post a couple of I don't know, maybe it was even earlier this week, but it was recent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I assume that, I think that this is something that you probably have in your toolbox to help these athletes, to help these clients that you work with. And that is every day to find the joy, awe, and wonder. Oh, yes. identify to identify. Yes. A, a, a moment of joy, a sense of awe and a sense of wonder every day of your life. And I think that can help people sort of reground themselves in why we do this stuff in the first place. Yeah. Now I love joy, awe, and wonder. It literally, it, and when we look for the joy, the awe, and the wonder, to actually take a few moments and, and let it soak in. You know, don't just go, oh, those cookies made me happy. No, what was it about those cookies? You know, they tasted so good and then they were just warm. And the fact that my mom made them for me, you know, like soak it in and take just a few minutes every day. Something that gives you joy, something that brings some awe, something that brings some wonder. And I, I think the Insta one you're talking about, I was standing on the canal and I think my awe that day was the awe of flight and how airplanes work, you know? Like, <laughs> yep, yep. Yep. There's fighter pilot Pat back at yeah, it. There it is. I love weight, lift, thrust, and drag. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. But it's still, it brings me, I know how airplanes work, but it still brings me awe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has brought me joy at awesome. 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. Uh, on the central time zone. Mm-hmm. And this was the best way for me to start my Friday morning, Pat. So it, it, 
now I got to go search for the, the wonder and the awe out there. But this was my moment of joy. So thank you so much for your time and your expertise and, and your personal experience. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to talk about this. I really do appreciate it. And I've also, I've spent from eight to nine on East Coast time, uh, but now I'm going to go out for a little bike ride and then start my day and, you know, find some joy and on wonder and the sunshine and the great outdoors. So this has been wonderful. Well, we're, we are so lucky to have you in the feisty family and, uh, uh, and appreciate your allyship for all of those who are underserved. Um, so thanks for fighting the fight for all of us. Well, I appreciate it. I really do. All right. Have a great day. Gettingyourmindingear.com is Pat's website for her mental skills coaching. And you can follow along with her blog posts, as well as connect to her on her social media channels, all from that website. I want to thank her again. She's very busy, both in her clinical practice and in her mindset coaching practice. So I want to thank Pat for taking the time to chat with me. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So now let's go out there. Let's do the hard stuff. Let's build the confidence that we need to get to where we want so that the thing that we keep saying I could never becomes heck yes. Let's do it. Have a great week.